So we have been in Mark, if you're new, we've been in Mark for months, just hitting the life of Jesus story after story. And what you've probably noticed about Jesus is he's a rock. Whatever he encounters, he navigates it brilliantly. Goes to a dinner where the people want to kill him. No problem. Goes to a giant storm where the disciples think they're going to die and he's asleep. No problem. Right? The boat leaves without him. No problem. I'll just walk. There's no food. No problem. I'll make some. Right? So there's been this theme with Jesus. He's interrogated by the top minds of the land. They come, they try to trap him in these questions, and he answers each one more brilliantly than the last one. You're just like amazed at him. He's a rock, confident, brilliant. With that in mind, let's read our text for today. Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and he did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. How shocked the disciples must have been who have watched Jesus navigate things with such confidence and with such poise. All of a sudden, he's greatly distressed. He's troubled, very sorrowful even to death. Maybe it's like, the first time you see your dad or your mom cry, you're like, what? I remember the first time I saw my mom cry, I was like, what? You can't cry. Who will take care of you? More importantly, who's going to take care of me if you're crying, right? Like, you, what in the world? That's, this is not going to work. So Jesus here is buckling. He's been tough as a rock. He's been confident through everything except for now. It's like this. Imagine the toughest person you know, the absolute stallion. Imagine that person crumbling, a Clint Eastwood, the rock, John Wayne, James Bond. 
Matt Heverly. Imagine that. <laughs> it's like that. Right? You read verse 34, and it's crazy. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. We don't use terms like that today. We would say, I'm depressed and suicidal. That's what Jesus is saying right here. This is so overwhelming to me, I'd rather die. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus in the garden was so stressed and pressured that the vessels in his forehead burst and he bled great drops of blood. That's a phenomenal amount of pressure. This is not what I expect. And by the way, this is one of the proofs of the authenticity of the gospels. Because you would never present the hero and founder of faith as having a moment like this. You just didn't do it 2,000 years ago. They were perfect and polished and heroes and everything they did was right. You wouldn't have this kind of a story. It's one of those authentic moments where you know, ah, they're telling the truth because this really took place. This happened. And if I was writing the gospel, here's what I would have expected from Jesus in this moment. Just some kind of brilliant last moment, like Braveheart, all men die, but few men live. Yeah. Or if you know church history, it's this great conversation that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley have. They were being burned at the stake for the gospel in the 16th century in England under bloody Queen Mary. And as the flings are coming up, Hugh looks at Ridley, and this is what he says. He looks at Nicholas and he says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. Yeah. He's being burned when he says this. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's what I would expect. Be of good cheer, boys. But it's not. It's distress. It's sorrow. It's suicidal thought. And so you read this and you have to say, why? Why was Jesus falling apart here? Jonathan Edwards, one of the most brilliant minds theologically America has ever produced, he says the reason right here that Jesus has this problem is he, unlike us, knew the depths of what was going to happen to his soul the following day. He understood the hell he was going to be put through. That we think, oh, Jesus died on the cross. It was six hours on a Friday afternoon. That's not what happened. The Bible says this, that he was slain before the foundations of the world. That it's not six hours on a Friday afternoon. That what happened to Jesus is lasting. It's cosmic. It's eternal. The Bible says that when we see him, that we shall see him as a lamb having just been slain. 
that the wounds are still fresh when we see him in eternity. That it's cosmic, it's massive, it's eternal, it's ah. And so Jesus knew everything that he was gonna have to go through, everything that was gonna be happening to him. And when he saw that, looked into that chasm, it crushes his soul. Because we already know this, the expectation of a bad thing can be worse than the thing itself, can it not? So when you're a little kid and you go to the dentist and you have a cavity and that dentist has to give you a shot of Novocaine, how do they do it? Do they pull out the needle and say, look, little kid, look at this three-inch needle. Here's what I'm gonna do with this needle. I'm gonna jab this into your cheek as deep as I can. And then I'm gonna inject something that's gonna feel just like acid. And then I'm gonna pull it out and I'm gonna jab it again and pull it out and jab it again and again and again and again and again. Are you ready? No. They got it behind their back and they're coming up and you're like, doctor, what do you have? Um, do you have a dog? Yeah. What is your dog's name? Rufus. There it is. Rah! Ah, okay. Because you don't want expectation. So yeah, I can kind of get that. But I'm not sure if that's the whole case here. Like, the Bible says he fell on the ground. You ever fall on the ground? Or you just kind of lose strength in your legs. Things are so bad, you just literally fall on the ground. I think here's what's happening in Mark. And here's why I love this little section. It's showing us the humanity of Jesus. And we miss that. Like our apologetics are all geared around and built around proving that Jesus is divine. So that's always what we're doing. Hey, he's divine, look at what he did. The proofs of it, right? He came out of the grave. That's, so we're always talking about Jesus is God. And he is. But in that, sometimes I think we miss something. It's why the ancients would paint pictures of Jesus and they put this kind of golden orb around his head. Like wherever he walked, he had this like glow because he's God. And with that, what we begin to believe is he never got sick. He was never sad. There was no discouraging words. There was no depression. He always trusted in the sovereignty of God. He always had complete faith. And you believe that until you come to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gethsemane literally means the olive press. It's the place where he is pressed. And this is shocking. Like the cross is not a surprise. Jesus for 10 chapters has been talking about the cross. The Old Testament predicted the cross. So it's not a surprise at all. But yet the Garden of Gethsemane is a shock. There is no prediction of it. It's shocking. It's why I love it, because it tells me something theologically about Jesus. And for a long time in my Christianity, I looked at Jesus like Clark Kent. He's Superman in disguise, right? Even though he looks like a man, he's still bulletproof. He can't bleed. He can run faster than a speeding locomotive. He still has x-ray eyes. He still has... Uh, ears that he can hear through walls. Like, that's the way I looked at Jesus. So then when I would see what Jesus did, I'd always be like, well, I can't do that. I'm not Superman. 
And with that, I kind of believe like, if you look at Jesus, he never had to be potty trained. He was never bullied as a kid. He never had his heart broken. He never was ganged up by his friends. He aced every class. He never had to study. He was never worried. He was never bored. So that's the picture I had in my head of Jesus. So he's not someone that I can relate to. He's someone that's different. This little story tells us At the incarnation, Jesus, God the Son, becomes just like you and me, 100%. That Philippians 2 says he took all of his God powers and he put them in his back pocket and he did not use them. That he lived life just like you and I live life. Empowered by God's spirit, yes, totally, completely, but doing it fully human. And he never does miracles for himself. Do you know that? He could have called down 72,000 angels to help him. He doesn't. He could have, after 40 days of starving, he could have turned stones into bread. He doesn't. He never used his Holy Spirit power for his own agenda. You ever want to use God's power for your agenda? Just call down fire and brimstone on your neighbor's illegal grow? Like, yeah. I'd go inside though when it's burning, Lord. I would do that. (laughs) A few of you got that. Like, oh. (laughs) Jesus never does that. Like, this is a brilliant story. I read this book and it was 21 pastors were asked this question. They were asked to write an essay on why God doesn't answer prayers. And there were good answers and it was interesting and I, I, I enjoyed that. It was great. What amazed me is not a single one of them referenced this passage where Jesus, God the Son, three times in a row pleads with the Father, please don't have me go to the cross. Right? You can't fault Jesus on anything. He has faith. He doesn't have some kind of secret sin that's blocking it. Right? He pleads with the Father, please, 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 please. And the father says, no. You ever pleaded with the father about something? Please heal my daughter. Please heal my son. Please free them from drugs. Please free them from addiction. Please help my dad. Please help my mom. Please help my marriage, right? You ever pleaded with God? This is huge to me. Like, I love reading the Old Testament. I love all the predictions of the Old Testament. I love Psalm 22 tells us about the death of Christ. I love Isaiah 53 that tells about his suffering. There is no text in the Old Testament that tells us about the Garden of Gethsemane. It is shocking. It's unprecedented in the Gospels. Unprecedented. And you've got the Son pleading with the Father, let this cup pass by me. Dads, what wouldn't you do for your kids? What wouldn't you do for your son or your daughter, right? You'll move mountains for them. Maybe simple things. I remember Gabrielle, my youngest daughter, when she was maybe six or seven, she got an American girl doll and she wanted a rocking crib for it. So she came to me one day, she says, Dad, can you please make me a crib that rocks? I know you can. 
And then she said this, because you can work miracles. I went, okay, let's go right now. Let's go to the bar and we're building that thing, right? Because you're just like, yeah. Listen to how Jesus prays to the Father to not go to the cross. It tells us how. It's Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. Just listen to this. In the days of his flesh, incarnation, 100% living life as a human, all his powers in his back pocket. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And the father says no. The father said no. I can't change it. The agony of the son and the father is unchanged. It's unexpected. You just say, wow. Okay, Matt, what does that mean for me then? Here's what it's meant for me. I look at the life of Jesus completely differently because of the lens of Gethsemane. It used to be a oh, pie in the sky, I can never do that. That's not how I look at the life of Jesus now. Peter, the guy who this gospel is based on, he says, his life is our example. John says this in John 1, 4, that his life is the light for all men, that the gospels are not, hey, oh, I could never do that. The gospels are, I'm supposed to live like that. That's what the gospels are. That I can be a fully empowered human by God's spirit and I can live just like Jesus lived. That is the goal for me. So I read the gospels, oh, so differently now. He's my true north. So, anyone here ever felt despair to the point of death like Jesus? Where you lose your strength and you just fall on your face? I have. It was May 28th, 2006, 10.32 at night. I just looked at the phone. And the news I got, my leg just buckled. Never happened to me before, has never happened to me since. What happens when you're in that moment? How do you deal with despair like that? We can look at the life of Jesus. What does Jesus do when he's full of despair? Notice three things he does. Number one, he got some buddies. James, John, Peter, come with me and pray. What do you and I do when we get depressed and suicidal? What do we do? Don't we isolate ourselves? I think it's the enemy's way of getting us away from the thing that would help us. That our natural tendency is not to grab buddies. It's not to share. It's not to talk. It's not, he tells them, hey guys, I need your help. Why? Because I am depressed to the point of death. We do the opposite. We hold it all in and we go isolate ourselves. So you read the life of Jesus, you start learning like, oh my goodness. I have to do things differently. That this is the way to actually live life. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus asks the disciples to pray with him. The only time. When he's depressed to the point of death. How amazing is that? And they're not even good at praying. Have you noticed that? They all fall asleep. 
but still he needed them. Now, why does Jesus have three buddies that when he is depressed to the point of death will go with him and pray? Because he spent three and a half years investing in them. If you're depressed to the point of death, do you have three friends that would go apart with you for a night and pray with you? I hope you do. In order to have those kind of friendships, guess what that means you have to be doing now? Jesus had made massive investments in Peter and in James and in John. And now when he wanted to withdraw, they're there for him. See, friendships, you've got to make investments in them in order to make a withdrawal. And I've said this before, I'll say it again and again. Men, the older we get, the worse we are at making friends. When's the old guys like me, I'm 50. What's the last friend you made? It was so easy in kindergarten, right? You can make friends, but something happens, right? Every study shows this. Women network, men work. And because of that, women get better and better at making friends as they age, typically. And men, we get worse and worse and worse at making new friends. And if we're not actively fighting that somehow, we won't have three buddies when we need them. I don't need a study to show me that. I just learned that with my own kids. Like my, um, I had three daughters, one, two, three. And I would get home from work and they were network with, networking with me from day one. I'd get home like, daddy, have a tea party with us. Okay, daddy, here's what we're gonna play. We're gonna play house. Here's the baby, it's my baby doll. You be the dad, I'm gonna be the mom. And then we're gonna, we're gonna do this beautiful little house right here. Like the moment I got home. And then I had Elijah. I remember when Elijah was like maybe two and a half, I'd come home from work and he's outside and he's got some kind of thing and it's a gun and he's shooting the bad guys. He's taking them out like, hey, bud, what are you doing? Hunting the bad guys, dad. I said, all right, can I join with you? I don't know. I mean, I kind of got it here and I really need your help. I've taken them all out, but if you must, I guess figure out what you're doing and join me. I was like, wow, (laughs) okay, I'm not wanted. It's just different. And we gotta fight it. And we gotta be investing. And I learned, I think, a secret about friendship from one of my daughters many years ago. She was like 12 years old. It was a Wednesday night. It was the end of service, nine o'clock at night. She had a horse lesson she was doing the next morning at 8 a.m. And she comes to us and says, hey, dad, mom, can I please spend the night at so-and-so's house? And I was like, no. And she said, why not? And so I said, because I said so. No. <laughs> I said, well, it, it makes no sense to me because you're gonna go over there, it's nine o'clock at night, and then you're just gonna sleep, and then you gotta come home at 8 a.m. and do your horse lesson. I mean, why? Because I think about things in efficiency and bucket list and all these things. And she just looked at me and she said, well, why? Because I'd be with her. And I remember, I've never forgot that. That's friendship. Friendship isn't bucket list and trying to accomplish things because I'm a work guy. Friendship is because I'll be with them. That's all it is. I'll just be with them. Are you being with people? Are you making that? That's what Jesus is, right? He's the incarnation of God being Emmanuel. I'm going to be with you, walk with you. Are you doing that? And there's ways that we have here. Volunteer and serve, that's a great way to meet people. We've got home groups, community groups, 
We've got game changer groups. There's Mondays with the ladies, jump in. Because you at some point, like Jesus, are gonna need friends. So number one, what does Jesus do when he's sorrowful to the point of death? Number one, he gets some buddies. Number two, he got alone with his dad. He goes and he prays. Three times he prays. How long is this? I don't know. I think it's a long time. It's long enough for these guys to fall asleep three times, right? That's an extended time. We're not talking five, 10 minutes. We're talking hours right here that Jesus goes and prays to the Father. And this is hard today because we are in an age of instant gratification, are we not? Like we, it's gotta be now. I was telling Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago that I remember like my mom had a camera and she would get a 36 picture roll of film. My mom did not take very many pictures. So she would fill that roll up over the course of maybe six months. And when she was done with it, she would take that little roll of film, she would put it in an envelope and she would ship it off somewhere because it was cheaper to get it done that way. And they would develop it, print out the pictures, and then they would send it back to us. By the time we got the pictures back, we didn't look like that anymore. We're like, who is that? That's not me, right? That was a, that's what happened. It was patience. And then it was Polaroids, like five minutes, you can have a picture. Like, wow, now it's five milliseconds you got the picture. So we have just been groomed. It's now, it's now, it's now. Like anything longer than two-day shipping is cruel and unusual punishment. I don't know, until Friday? This is insanity. I'm never using that company again. Man, what do they think this is? <sighs> right? Not in Antarctica. How about letters? When I lived in Vanuatu, I would write a letter. I would put it in the mail. It would take three to four weeks to get from me to my fiance charity in America. She would then read it, write her letter back to me, put it in the mail, and it would take three to four weeks to get back to me. Six to eight weeks between hearing from each other. And that's fast if you look at human history, right? Previous to that, it went as fast as somebody could walk. Like that's slow. Now it's email. And if you don't get a response to your email in one day, you're like, hmm. How about text messaging? If you don't get a response in five minutes, someone's gonna die. <laughs> Do you hate me, man? Come on, I texted you four minutes ago. Get back to me. So we have a pace in life that fights this getting alone with God that they didn't have. Because most people 2,000 years ago were farmers. And guess what you cannot speed up? An apple. An apple doesn't care how impatient you are. It doesn't care. You won't get a good apple till September. Wait for it. So they were used to this pace of waiting. I think God wants us to get used to that same pace. Listen to this verse. It's Isaiah 40, 31. But they who, press God to move faster. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Jesus lost his strength, he fell down. So what was he doing? I need renewed strength. I need to wait on him. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, get vision. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
All that is predicated on one thing. What, are we, what do we need to do? To get strength, to get vision, to get non-weariness, what do we need to do? We gotta wait on the Lord. And we're not good at that. It's like, hey, well, Lord, I'm gonna pray to you, but if you don't do something by Monday, you know, I just gotta do this. You know, I, I can't wait for you. Don't we? We all do that. And yet the example in the Bible of patient waiting is a guy by the name of Abraham. Guess how long he waited for his promise? 25 years. We give God 25 minutes. Abraham gave him 25 years. We have to start learning to wait on the Lord. That's where strength comes. Jesus, in his moment of deep despair, got some buddies with him. I need that. I need encouragement from that. And then I'm gonna wait on the Lord for an answer from him. And then thirdly and lastly, he obeys. It's this little phrase here. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. I have poured out to you, God, what I want, what I desire. I say, I don't want this cup. Let it pass by me, but not my will, your will. God, you hold all things. You know you have all the information. I don't have it, so I'm going to trust you, not my will, but your will. Does that ring a bell? It should because it's how we're taught to pray. It's Matthew chapter six, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we pray that way? Because I know this, I've made stupid mistakes I thought were wise. But they were my will, not the Father's will. Okay, I want your will. And here's what happens. If you read the end of this, Jesus, the third time, 41, are you still sleeping and taking rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's back. His soul has been restored. His strength has been given again. He's full of power again. For us, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's that. It's not Jesus pie in the sky, I could never do those things. It's if we live like him because God's will for every one of us, you know what it is? People ask me, I don't know what God's will for my life is. You know what I tell them? God's will for all of us is exactly the same. It's Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know all things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. What's your destiny? To be like Jesus. To be a restored human. To be living exactly like Jesus lived. So how do we do that? Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. We're supposed to behold him. How are we changed? By beholding him. Now, how do you behold him? Here's what I think. I think women know how to behold a lot better than men do. 
I think men glance and women behold. So yesterday, um, we had a wedding to go to at like five o'clock, but we need to leave at like 4.25. So my daughters and my wife, my four ladies in my house, they started getting ready for that wedding, I don't know, at 5 a.m. or something. Like it was all day prep, right? And that had, there was planning that went in before that of what they were going to wear, right? So it's just beholding. And like for me, we had some uh, good friends over and we were talking, having conversation. And it was like 4.15, I'm like, oh man, I should get dressed, right? Took me like eight minutes. And I was still the first one in the car. I beat all my daughters who for all day had been prepping for this, right? Because women behold and men glance. Ladies, think about your morning. You beheld, did you not? Like you got up and you went to the bathroom, mirror, mirror on the wall. And you beheld what eight hours of sleep did to you. You're like, ah. And if that wasn't enough, you pulled out the 360 mirror where you could get really a good view from the backside, right? Like, wow, what is that? 45 minutes later, it's the full length mirror where you behold the transformation. And then if you drive with your wife to church, what happens then? It's mirror four and five, visor mirror and your rear view mirror. You don't need to see traffic, I need to see this, right? So it's stare and behold. And then there's the last mirror as you're walking to church, it's the pocket purse mirror, just in case that eyebrow went crazy again. Okay, men don't have pocket mirrors. Young men, I'll repeat that. You don't get a pocket mirror, okay? <laughs> they know how to behold. That's what that word is there. It's not glancing. It's beholding until you become the same image. That's what it is. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, Matt, how does that work? Like, that just seems like a platitude. Here's how it works for me. I'll give you two verses. Number one is this, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all, what does all mean? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. These are one of my promises. So what that means for me is this. It's a prayer I pray almost every single morning. It's I wake up and I say, Jesus, today, I wanna be a good husband to my wife. I wanna be a good dad to Carissa and Bella and Gabrielle and Elijah and Myron and if we have somebody else in our home. I wanna be a good pastor of Edgewater. I wanna be a good member of the community here in Grants Pass, Josephine County. And I know that I have tendencies in myself that will sabotage those things. And so today, help me to have a listening ear to you. Help me as I go throughout my day and I encounter things that maybe agitate me or get me. May I quickly acknowledge you in those moments and say, straighten me out, Jesus, because I know I can go sideways right now. And I'm amazed at what happens when I do that. That works right there. He straightens me out. He gives me wisdom. He whispers into my soul, this is the way, Matt, walk in it. Okay, yes. That's what it means to behold. And then, Secondly, one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 26, three. You keep him in perfect peace. Not just peace, perfect peace. Who here wants perfect peace? 
right? So if you didn't raise your hand, you don't want perfect peace. You want like anger and agitation and anxiety. That's what I want. I hope you want perfect peace, right? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We have a world, like I was thinking about news recently, like news is now, it's not always been that way, but news is now, it's actually the main way that they get people to stay tuned into news is guess what? Make you worry, get you anxious, right? Like, like I joke about the fires, like, hey man, like it, it rained, that's good news. No, it's not. The underbrush is growing. It's gonna be worse this year. I'm just like, you guys, it's amazing to me. Like you make everything negative. I'm just like, ah, I can't do it. That's news. That's how they do it now. Inflation, whatever, even if thing is brilliant, they're gonna find some ways to make it bad. Why? Because you'll tune in then. The world is there to make sure you don't have perfect peace. So here's what I do now. And I try to be as in tune with the world as possible and make wise decisions, no doubt. But here's what I do no matter what news I hear. Here's what I say in my head. There is a king called Jesus who Ephesians 1.10 says is working all things after the counsel of his will. He has a plan that he will execute and I know the end of the story and it's brilliant. And that's the king that I trust in. And guess what happens in my soul? Perfect peace. I'm not being stupid. I'm not being, I'm just, there is a king who's on the throne, who's working thing after the counsel of his will. And that's the king that I trust in, no matter what news there is. This is what it means to behold Jesus. This is what it means to say, I wanna live his life. That's what it is. It's amazing to me. It's life transforming. And so as we go to the table today, here's what I would say. We get to partake in his life. And we've made Jesus all about the cross, as huge as that is, as great as atonement is, as wonderful as justification is. It's awesome, but read the gospels. What are the majority of the gospels? Jesus' life. Why? Because it's the example for us. It's so that we can say, ah, that's the pattern of real humanity. That's how I want to live my life. And so as we take communion today, what I would say is this, Jesus, help me to take in your life today and live it. So Jesus, today, as we hold you, I pray for every heart in here, that we would be a community of followers of you that behold you, that are being transformed into the same image, that acknowledge you in all of our ways, and we live lives directed by you that look more and more and more conformed to your image. Let's eat together. And the cup the cup of your acceptance, the cup that you will never leave us nor forsake us, the cup that even when we fail to acknowledge you and 
lose the perfect peace and choose our will over your will, the cup that says you will not cast us off, you will not grow tired of us, you will not stop forgiving us, your mercies are new every morning, your grace is an ocean we can never drink. That's what this cup tells us. So may we drink deeply of your acceptance of us. Let's drink together. Amen. So we have prayer up here after we, we, every service on Sunday in Edgewater. If you have prayer for something, there'll be people stationed up here. They would love to pray for you. We offer baptism. Jason, right over there. If today's your day to be baptized, great day to do it. Salvation, free gift. Baptism is really declaring Jesus as king and you're obeying him now. And if he says be baptized, I'm gonna obey him as king. So talk with Jason if today is your day and we'd love to join with you as Jesus authors and finishes your story of faith. Would you stand for this final song?